Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from Jason Stockwood, the chairman and joint majority shareholder of Grimsby Town, recently promoted back into the Football League. It's a very happy, very upbeat and very interesting interview. I think Grimsby Town fans, their club is in safe hands, Kieran. Hello, it's Newsday. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, so I think the first thing we have to do is congratulate the Lionesses on a stunning 4-0 defeat of Sweden, a team that have never conceded more than two goals in the Euros before in their career. Yep, yeah, uh, fa- fantastic victory. Um, I unfortunately had to miss it because I'm, I'm teaching at night school, which starts at 2am, so therefore I have to go to bed at 6 um, so when I woke up, uh, it, 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 helped, it helped me get through those uh, pretty painful hours in the middle of the night. Kieran, what sort of night school starts at 2am? You make it sound like school for scoundrels, with Terry Thomas teaching gentlemen how to be a lockbreaker. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not that far away from that. I, I can't go into too many details. <laughs> it, was, um, okay, well, it was a great game, Kieran. And I'll tell you what you missed, Kieran, because you've been watching some of the games at the Amex, You'd have been amazed. It was a proper atmosphere, Bramall Lane. Oh, it's great! It's really, it was really exciting. And uh, although the Swedish goalkeeper may have had less sleep than you did last night, to be perfectly honest. And Newsday, Kieran, and the first bit of news is breaking news, but it's potentially huge news, and it's that the Premier League is close to agreeing what's been called a new deal for football. Um. Yes, uh, I, I think it's uh, indicative of the number of American owners that we now have in the English game that they've tried to nick something off uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt in terms of uh, this this so-called New Deal. I, I believe it's close to agreement within the Premier League itself. If I was the EFL, I, I wouldn't be throwing my hat in the air in relation to it. Um, the, the main issues, um, first of all, Parachute payments, which are, as we know, a very emotional topic, Mm. Um, they are going to be reduced. We don't know by how much. We don't know for how long. Um, Is that does that mean that there's additional money uh, going to the other clubs in the EFL? We'll have to wait and see. Um, Secondly, the Premier League says that it's going to allocate money to EFL clubs on a sliding scale, and I'm not. 
quite sure why that's a significant benefit because part of the problem that we have within the Premier League itself, which which nobody seems to talk about, is that it's very predictable um, in, in the sense that we know who the top six are going to be every year. Um, and there's uh, th- there's no jeopardy in that. Uh, and that that's getting a bit... Uh, uh, a bit tedious, uh, and surely, if we're going to repeat that as far as the uh, EFL is concerned, could we end up with effectively some form of Premier League two, where the, the same clubs who are getting into the top six get more money, and therefore they they are the clubs which get uh, entrenched in terms of promotion, playoffs, and so on. Mm. So that that one doesn't make a, a lot of sense to me. Um, the, the Premier League has said we're worried about any additional money we give to the EFL going straight on wages. And to be fair, whenever the Premier League has given more money in the form of uh, additional TV monies coming through in better deals, it's gone straight through into wages. So will the money therefore have to go for, for infrastructure grants, um, which which is something the, the Premier League wants claims it wants to do um but you know why why would the the owners of liverpool or manchester united or arsenal be that much bothered because barnsley or sunderland are going to get a new training facilities i'm i'm just not quite sure of the rationale so you know sometimes these things are done because they sound good rather than they've actually been thought through um i think that the biggest issue is um, the, the the Premier League never gives anything for nothing, and certainly when they agreed the uh, original commitment to solidarity payments, they did that on the proviso that the elite player performance plan, which allows the Premier League to snaffle all of the best academy talent uh, in the country for themselves, with pretty minimal compensation being paid that was that was the price EFL clubs paid at that particular stage um it does seem that the EFL uh, might have to take on board um loan payer, loan players from premier league clubs under 23 players um and whilst this isn't quite b teams by stealth we are edging towards more and more of the premier league effectively forcing other clubs to 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 train their 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 younger talent they can't go abroad to the same extent under the the, the changes which are being introduced by fifa and uefa in respect of loan players overseas um but uh, does that mean that they're going to be forced to play in the efl so um i i it's it's an interesting proposal. Um, I, I had got wind of it some time ago, sort of broadly uh, in, in this in the, in this format. Um, the, the devil will be in the detail, uh, but uh, I can't imagine a very positive reaction from uh, the other seventy two. Well, it was only a, a broad outline that's sort of been mm. published this morning. So I think it's only right, Keen, that we give you a few days to absorb that detail. And then I'm sure that we'll be talking about it uh, at some length because uh, it's quite a substantial proposal. And as you say, oh, the EFL probably aren't going to re- react to it as, as positively as the Premier League imagine. Um, in other news stories, though, Kieran, uh, my club, Crystal Palace, are one of many that have announced that the brand new rebarb and custard electric uh, animated stripe kit 
probably won't be in the club shop until uh, September or October. And we seem to be one of many, many clubs, Kieran, where supply chain issues mean kit sales are being delayed. Yes, uh, this is on the back. Of, there was a report in The Athletic last week, but also I know that the BBC have been doing some analysis in respect of this. And it's only around about half of the 92 clubs that will have uh, both home and away shirts available for fans <laughs> to buy at the start of the season. Now, part of me says, well, you know, we we can be patient, but it's sort of it's a bit of a rites of passage, isn't it? You know, you go to the first mm. match. There's lots of people, especially kids who who want to be wearing the the, the kits which are being worn by their heroes. Um, so so it's I think it's an irritant more than anything else. But in terms of the reasons behind this, um, I, I think the clubs are innocent of this to a certain extent. The manufacturers are as well. The vast majority of the production of football kits is taking place in China, Vietnam and Cambodia because that's where the global textile trade operates these days. Um, and uh, we're aware that uh, as a result of, especially uh, in China, the, the government takes a fairly strict approach to uh, breakouts of covid and if there are breakouts, then there's there's pretty much of a of a close down of of the cities and towns involved, and of course that involves the workplaces. So there's been delays in terms of physically producing the the shirts, um, and then there's a case of how do we get the shirts from China and and the rest of of uh, uh, Southeast Asia to the UK. Well, there's there's huge bottlenecks in terms of the the mm. global. Uh, logistics trade. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps Chris Kirchner could come to the, rec- <laughs> the rescue here, um, given given his track record. I, b- I believe he's now been suspended, by the way, by his own board of directors uh-huh. uh, for, for various things. But we won't go into it. We won't go. We won't divert into that. Um, th- there's problems because the 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 global container ship industry is one which it's it's a bit like air traffic control it's very organized but it only takes a small delay or or small problems in one particular area so for example if shanghai port is closed for six days that has huge knock-on effects and you end up with you know dozens and dozens of container ships not being able to go into the port which means that they have to wait for the ships to come out and everything ends up getting delayed um People will say, "Well, hold on. You know, why can't the, the the kits be produced in Europe? Because the likes mm. of Adidas and Puma uh, and, and Nike will have production outlets in Europe." To be fair, um, that they are being produced in Europe in in some cases, but this is uh, this then results in uh, who are Adidas and Nike going to prioritise? And it, it's it's not going to be the likes of Brighton or Palace mm. uh, or the likes of Morecambe or Southend because. Uh, a Manchester United shirt will cost you seventy-five quid. A Liverpool shirt will cost you seventy, seventy-five quid, um, and our, our shirts are cheaper and and they and they are sold in smaller numbers. So the, it's the bigger clubs that get the, the the biggest benefits here. This is an exciting day for Morecambe fans, Kieran, because that's the first of two mentions they're going to get later on. Um, it is an irritant, as you say. It's not as much of an irritant as finding out that the extra large shirt seems to be getting smaller every season for some reason. I, <laughs> I don't know why that is. Um, the supply chain thing is really interesting. A friend of mine is one of the country's leading suppliers of goalkeeping gloves. 
and he's having exactly the same problems. He's got a huge shipment stuck somewhere in the world, and he's not entirely sure where. But there's only there's only so long he can wait for it to arrive before he obviously gets into cash flow difficulties. But I'm, I'm presuming, though, Kieran, for Premier League clubs, the fact that they can't sell shirts until October, for example, isn't going to have any sort of impact really on, on match day income, is it, or, or weekly income? No, the, the the larger clubs are protected. And the reason for that is that if you take a look at Manchester United's contract with Adidas, for example, Manchester United are guaranteed a flat £75 million a year plus a commission on every shirt sold. Um, and, and that commission is only about 7%. So Adidas will have paid the instalments which are, have been due to date for the 22-23 season. So, so a, a Manchester United's cash flow will not be impacted. What's of greater concern is for, for those clubs further down the pyramid who haven't had ticket sales during you know, at least half of May, June and July. Um, and, and the kit launch does provide a, a financial fillip for them. Um, you know, at a time when when money is tight, but you know, there's been, there's been no indication that there's any extra stresses and strains. Uh, you know, there's no signs of any clubs going out, of, you know, going into administration or anything on the back of this. But it's it's certainly making what's a, a fairly precarious position for the lower league clubs just a bit more of a pain in the backside to have to deal with. The new Chelsea owners, Kieran, are raising eight hundred million pound of debt to reshape the club. Is that one of the reasons that Thomas Tuchel has been quite grumpy publicly about not getting players that he thought he was going to get? Although he's got Raheem Sterling, which is not not bad, really, is it? Exactly. Um, I, I I don't think the two are necessarily connected. Um, the right. one of one of the reasons why uh, Chelsea have not necessarily been able to sign the players that they're looking forward to um, was that negotiations are normally taking place months in advance of a signing occurring. And what ah, Chelsea okay. were unable to do during March, April and May was to uh, was to be able to make offers to players. And therefore, they, they flipped it. They, they slipped down the pecking order. There's also, you know, Rafina went to Barcelona instead of Chelsea, and I think they were fairly confident of signing him. Yeah. I think it's been one or two other players where they thought that were in the good chance. Um, and this this might be indicative of Chelsea perhaps being a little bit more modest in terms of what they're prepared to pay players than they were under Abramovich, which where it was very much a, an environment of, uh, you know, money money didn't matter. Um, so um, the the nature of this borrowing is that there's a five hundred million pound loan. Now, from what what I've read to date, uh, although there'll be quite a lot of interest on this loan, um, it's not being borne by the club. Somehow, the tabs being ping, picked up by the owners, and that strikes me as very strange and, and very inconsistent with sort of the approach that we've seen from some of the other American owners of, of uh, English football teams, especially Manchester United, who have racked up £850 million worth of, of interest since since that takeover. Um, in addition to the £500 million loan, there's a £300 million overdraft facility. So yeah, it's a bit like a normal overdraft. You, you, it's, it's a facility. It's not a target. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit like a normal overdraft, only 300 million times bigger. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean Ch- Chelsea... Chelsea did sort of use Abramovich a bit like the the the, uh, the bank of mum and dad yeah. in the sense that 
um, when they were short of cash to play individual uh, months of, of wage bills, they borrow from him. And then when the next tranche of money came in from either UEFA or a transfer fee or or the Premier League, they'd pay it back. So in, in the last set of accounts, they borrowed $150 million from him over the course of 2021, but they managed to repay 130 I, I think what they're going to have to do here is is to use this overdraft facility in, in, a, in a similar way to the club used uh, Abramovich. And, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. Manchester United have got an overdraft facility of of a similar nature. Uh, Kieran, there's one thing we've learned doing this pod. It's that I'm not afraid of asking the obvious question. But surely when your club has just been taken over by billionaires, why are they having to take out loans from elsewhere? Yes, this this has caused eyebrows to be raised. It, It could be that effectively... When uh, when the club was acquired, it was acquired with nothing in the bank account and and no debts either. So, if this is needed for working capital, in the sense that they do want to invest in the transfer market, uh, this that could be the justification. Um, there has been talk, in addition, of the the club upgrading some of the facilities, um, and so therefore it might be going into infrastructure projects. Um, people are trying to link this to the uh, the, the one point seven five billion uh, uh, pound commitment that the new owners have given over the course of the next ten years, and it could be that they're getting the loans in early in a position to be able to go and spend the money later. And speaking of loans, Kieran and debt, which we seem to do quite a lot on this pod recently, Burnley and Watford have both had to make use of what you probably could call posh payday loans over the summer? Yes. Um, and this, this, on the face of it, does seem a little bit strange. Um, and the reason why I say that is, is you know, Burnley and uh, Watford were relegated, but they are in receipt of, of parachute payments. Yeah, yeah. So, so given that, why do they need to be cashing in? Um, but yeah, they, they have both lodged documents at uh, Company's House, uh, so in respect of Watford, what they've effectively done is they have taken the money now in respect of some of the parachute payments up to, I think it's January 2024. So yeah, the parachute payments for the next couple of years. Um, how much is involved, we don't know. But uh, it, 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 on the face of it, it seems strange, although I, I don't think they've had many players leave the club. No. Uh, although... Again, listening to what one or two of the uh, of the of the first team have said, it, it didn't seem a very happy dressing room um, at that club uh, during uh, the course of the last season. There were there were quite a few grumbles about uh, how things were under Ranieri, um, and that uh, some of the players had effectively checked out mentally months before the end of the season, uh, but. Trying to get players off the books when they're on decent wages is is always a challenge. So so that's the position in respect of of Watford. So they've taken money from Macquarie Bank. Uh, they normally charging in the region of seven to ten percent uh, on that. So you know so, sizable amounts, especially if you are in the Championship. In the case of Burnley, you know, and I know I've, I've historically said that I felt that Burnley were the best run club financially in the Premier League under the old owners, what we are seeing from the new owners is 
Uh, Burnley had £80 million in the bank when they acquired the club. Some of that was used to to pay off the old owners. All of a sudden, there was a £65 million loan being taken out. That loan had a clause in that it had to be partially repaid uh, upon relegation. I think that was £15 million. Um, they sold Chris Wood in Newcastle to Newcastle for, for twenty five million. That was that was a you know, good price for a for a striker who's uh, you know he's, he's a solid Not striker. Chris Wood, as we know, um, yeah. uh, but th- that was in two instalments, um, and, and they cashed in on the second instalment fairly quickly. And, and what we're now seeing is that they sold Nick Pope again to Newcastle. Mm. Um, Newcastle are paying in instalments now. People are saying, well, you know, Newcastle don't have to pay in instalments. Yeah, they they don't have to, but. It, that's what that's what how the industry operates. You know, yeah, why should why should Newcastle give Burnley cash, which no other club would do? Um, so there were three instalments worth about seven million pounds in respect of the next three years. Uh, that sale went through in June twenty twenty two, and within thirty days, um, uh, Burnley Football Club had effectively taken those three IOUs from Newcastle. And effectively traded them like a like a payday loan. You know, here I've got three promises of money. How much will you give us for them? Um, so this, this in, does indicate that um, you know cash is cash is needed at Burnley. Um, they've they've sold they've sold quite a few players. You know, they sold Pope, they sold Collins. Um, so why why is the cash needed so urgently? Uh, is is open to question. The other club that were relegated, Kieran, was Norwich. Would this indicate then that because Norwich haven't had to do this, that as they've said all along, theirs is a more sustainable financial model perhaps than other clubs, that when they do get relegated, they're able to cushion the blow better than than perhaps Burnley and Watford have done? Um, Yeah, I I think Norwich are run superbly uh yeah we, we've had we've had people from norwich on the show um they 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 run a, a very tight ship they 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 prepare two budgets uh, at the start of the season one for if they stay up and one if they don't and and i think reading between the lines they were probably working off budget number two right. from about november yeah uh, you know because they they didn't have a particularly good season and they, they were never really out of the bottom three um so i think norwich are actually budgeting for relegation to a certain extent and and that's why they've not had to go down this route um, they're always very conscious of the fact that they don't have uh, owners with independent wealth so therefore they, they they try to keep within the parameters of of the cash that's available to them and and just briefly on Burnley because I'm sure some of their fans will be thinking it's you know we we're offloading players off the wage bill so on we're getting money in as we have to, but Vincent Company can't have come cheap. I mean, he's an exciting appointment as manager, but I'm guessing uh, an expensive one. Um, one one would think so, um, and uh, you know he he would have come to the club with his eyes open. Uh, I'm sure he would have been told the expectations. Um, an awful lot of players have left Burnley because they've been out of contract. Yeah, you know, we, we've seen the two centre halves go. We've seen Nick Pope go. You know, the spine of the side has is, is, is very much disappeared. Um, so uh, yeah, I, Vincent Company, high profile player. I imagine a high profile manager. Um, Absolutely top top bloke as well as anybody mm. that's worked in education will know because he he he's uh, he 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 wanted his his education beyond football as well. Um, I think I think he will have a an, an interesting season ahead of him. 
uh, I remember when Vincent was a guest on League of Their Own and James called him very early on, oh, you're really unusual for a footballer. You speak two languages, didn't you? And uh, there was a brief pause and Vincent just went, four, <laughs> which was very funny. Um, and talking of language, Kieran, it's lovely to hear you say one would think so. It's very, your mother would be very proud to hear you speaking properly. Like that. It just makes me think of Uncle Terry going, one would like it in cash and one would like it now, <laughs> please. Um, Rafinha going to Barcelona, you mentioned, um, is just one of many high-profile transfers. Mm. And in the past couple of weeks, we've had a lot of people saying to us, where the bibbly cheese is Barcelona getting the money from uh, to buy all these players? Because we've spoke... Uh, quite often in the past six months about their issues with, with FFP and their issues with shortage of cash and they're offering all sorts of media stuff up for sale. And But as usual, nothing seems to deter them from spending money on as many players as they can possibly gather. Yes, I mean, Barcelona has turned it into a bit of a financial clown car, if anyone yeah. can describe it. Um, the, the club's got 1.2 billion euros worth of debts now, I think the only club that's probably got more debt than Barcelona is Spurs. But Spurs has got a, a, a brand new shiny stadium on the back of it. And Spurs are only paying interest on the debt until around about 2039. So from a cash flow point of view, the way that Spurs have organised their finances has been very, very smart. Um, when it comes to Barcelona, uh, the word smart is not one that I would choose to use. Um, they, they sold Neymar a few years ago. And what did they do? They signed Dembele, they signed Griezmann, they signed um, Coutinho, all on uh, you know nine-figure uh, uh, signings. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that, that none of them have been particularly a success. Um, so that meant that they had a lot of financial commitments and, um, in 2021, they certainly were hit very badly by COVID, um, and they lost over half a billion. You know, so we, yeah, we, we, wow, all, yeah, yeah. We, we start talking about you know, thousands and then tens of thousands. You know, 550 billion euro was lost in 2021. Now, some of that was for technical reasons. They're paying 800,000 a week in interest on their loans. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good few salaries. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the numbers involved... Are, are crazy, and yet you know, they sign Rafinha, they sign Lewandowski, they've got Christensen coming to them. And whilst these players have been signed, they've not yet been registered, i.e. Oh. they are unable to play for the club. Um, and, and this is where the things start to get uh, a, a bit, bit crazy. Under the La Liga cost controls, um, the amount of money you can spend on wages is determined by the amount that you're committed to pay back in terms of loans and other and transfer fees over the course of the next 12 months. So Barcelona have done quite a few things. First of all, they did have some loans which were due to be repaid in the next 12 months. So what they've done, and you're like this, they put them on the back burner. They've yeah. rescheduled them. Mm. So, um, so so that is, um, is, is one way of pushing. It's, it's, it's kicking the can down the road. Then, and I mentioned payday loans in respect of, of Watford and, and Norwich, Barcelona have done the same, but they've done it quite spectacularly. Um, they have um, they've committed to giving 25% of their broadcast rights, not for the, for the period of the parachute payment. So, so Watford, have, you know, Watford have got to 18 months worth of cash, which is being allocated. Um, 
Barcelona have committed to uh, 25 years worth of broadcast money. They're giving a quarter of their broadcast money to an American institution called Sixth Street. Um, We've seen one of the deals, apparently, uh, where Barcelona, it it looks as if uh, they're going to get 207 million euros from the first 10% of the deals that have been sold. But it's... it means that they're going to lose 414. So for every every one euro they get, they're effectively losing two, which is you know I, I know and I know it's over 25 years, but even so, yeah, that's a that's a lot, that's a big cash commitment. They've done the same, or they're proposing to do the same, and they, they don't they don't use yeah you know, they're they're sophisticated in in Barcelona. They don't use phrase like payday loans like I do. They call them economic levers. Nice, yeah. Nice. Yes. <laughs> yes. Brings us right back to Uncle Terry. He had a, he had several economic levers, didn't he? He wasn't yes. afraid to use them. <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, there, there's one. There's one last thing that they're doing. It's it's called emotional blackmail. Yeah. Like they're they're trying to get players like like Dijon to to either leave or if they're going to stay, having signed him on a you know a four year contract, which was very lucrative, to say, um, yeah, if you do leave, we we you agreed to a pay deferral. Of around about seventeen million, um, we'd just like you to write that off. Or if you do stay, we want you to take a fifty percent pay cut. Mm. But th- yeah, they signed a contract, the f- yeah, the club, uh, and um, yeah, if, if the players not quite delivered as they'd expect, yeah, it's a classic case of let the buyer beware. Yeah, mm. that, that's that's a risk you take in all football clubs. But to try to emotionally blackmail people to either leave or take pay cuts is is, is a very strange approach. Um, but. That's that's modern football. Well, they use emotional blackmail on an even bigger scale than that, really, because they know there's no bank in the world that's going to foreclose Barcelona's debts, is there? Mm. You're, you're absolutely right. So um, that they are they are uh, into some of the. I think they're, they're owed, owed money to some of the American investment banks who who aren't noted for their uh, for their. Uh, should we say? More, more emotional, more, more fluffy approach to lending, uh, but even so, I think they uh, th- they'd think twice about uh, calling in anything mm. from Barcelona. Now, um, listeners may have heard a few minutes ago a bit of banging and crashing and some loud voices, and Ali getting very excited. That's because our friend Bono has just turned up from <laughs> Limerick. <laughs> not that friend, not that Bono, but he's called Bono because uh, Bono came into a pub once when baby Bono was sitting on the bar. It's Limerick after all, and uh, Bono stroked the baby's head and he's been Bono ever since, basically. Uh, he's also called DJ Willio DJ. Uh, <laughs> to, the, to the extent I've generally forgotten what, what his real first name is. Um but he'll be interested in this next story because he's a huge football fan, Man United, of course, because he's from Limerick. Um, but the the FA of Ireland, or rather I should say the FAI, the Football Association of Ireland, posted a surplus of €6.7 million Euro for 2021, but still remains in debt to the tune of €63.5 million, Euro, Kieran. Yes, yes, and this is a classic case of just be a little bit careful about the headlines because the the FAI said, "Oh yeah, we we had this surplus in twenty twenty one." So I decided to sort of have a bit of a deeper dive into the numbers, and it turns out that they were very, very reliant on government grants, uh, furlough in effect, um, 
money from the equivalent of, of Sport England, i.e. Sport, you know, the, the, one of the Irish uh, authorities that, that does give money, which, which contributed, I think, half of the total income generated by the FAI. Um, there is still a huge hangover. Uh, as, as far as the operations of Irish football are concerned, the uh, the complete collapse of governance under the previous regime has come at a huge financial cost. Um, whilst the whilst debts have stabilised at at sixty three million euro, um, it's also I think valid to point out that what the FAI have done is that they have taken money in advance from quite a few of their commercial partners. Um, in order to keep down their formal debts to a, to a, an acceptable level, so it, it's going to be a long and fairly tortuous process that they're going to have to go through. And people might say, "Well, sh- should we really care?" Uh, because you know, surely it's the bigwigs that are going to suffer. Um, but it, it's a bit like the the FA here. You know, whilst we have a, a, a pop at the bigwigs, the, the the football association in both here in England and, and the FAI is responsible for giving grants and for giving financial mm. support to grassroots football. Mm. And and I think that's the area which is going to be my concern as as to what's going to suffer worst of all. So um, it's 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 not a good position to be in. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the Republic of Ireland aren't competing in, in the World Cup in, in uh, Qatar in, in 2022, as we know. So therefore, it's, it's, it's going to struggle to find significant sources of revenue. Um, unless it starts to deliver on the pitch, because you, know, you do get uh, you do get money for competing in these competitions. And uh, uh, as, as somebody that has, has seen Ireland uh, play in in playoffs and play at, uh, I went to uh, Euro twenty sixteen in France. Uh, you know they, they they travel in numbers and and uh, and yeah, along with the Northern Ireland fans and the Scottish fans are, are absolutely fantastic as well in, in terms of of the entertainment value that they bring wherever they go. Mm. Two more stories, Kieran, before we have that uh, very interesting interview with Jason Stockwood, chairman of Grimsby Town. And the first one, the timing of this one is quite interesting, Kieran, considering we're coming to the end of what's been a remarkably successful women's Euros. But debt-ridden cities could boycott the joint UK and Ireland bid for the 2028 men's Euros in protest at the multi-million pound bill they would get for hosting matches. Yes, this, this is a story from Ben Rumsby in the in the Telegraph, and it is an intriguing one. Um, you know, it, I think uh, there, there is a, a a very high chance that uh, the European Championships will come to uh, to these countries in in twenty twenty eight. UEFA have said that they want ten stadiums. Now, you know, there will be one in Wales, there will be Hamden in Scotland, uh, there will be the Aviva in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, trying to get something which is going to be holding thirty thousand people in, in Northern Ireland, I think is going to be a challenge. But I'm, I'm sure that they'll do do what they can. Um, but all, but um, what I think the FA is keen to to, to be the case is that there is regionalisation of matches mm, uh, of in England as well. So, mm. you know, so so that the benefits are genuinely spread. But what local authorities are finding is that uh, UEFA and the FA are saying. We're bringing this shiny competition to you. Um, we want you to pay for the privilege, and the yeah, lo- and local government are saying, "Well, hold on, you know, we're skint as it is. 
you know, we, we're unable to go and provide social care. We can't get the bins cleaned. We, we can't do this, that, and the other. We're, we're closing down libraries. And now you are turning around to us and say, uh, well, it's going to cost you money if you if you want to uh, be a host city. Um, and, and are there benefits? Yeah, yeah there, there are benefits of being a host city. But I've got to be honest, uh, if anybody's ever read these, these economic reports, which are prepared prior to a big event taking place, uh, and and for example, the the London 2012 Olympics, mm. uh, the, the 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 revenues tend to be overstated, and the costs tend to be understated from a financial point of view. Um, so so they they're not uh, as economically beneficial as as the as the writers claim them to be. So it's uh, it'll be interesting to see if we'll actually have individual towns and cities dropping out uh, of of the bidding process. I believe that the deadline is the twelfth of August. So uh, we will wait to see who are the the preferred clubs, but sorry, preferred hosts. Uh, but it could be that sometimes you might say, "Well, why didn't our city go for it?" And, it, and it's being done purely because of money. Well, there's the problem for these cities as well. Say say Leeds, for example. Uh, pulled out, uh, you know, of a, a bid to be one of the cities that take part. There'll be many thousands of football fans in Leeds who will be cross about that decision, even if they explain the financial reasons for it. And regardless of the economics of the 2012 Olympics, as a Londoner, that was the, one of the happiest three weeks of my life. Gen- can genuinely say I felt, you know, six inches taller while the Olympics were in were in my city. And you tend not to worry about the finances of it either before. Or afterwards, so it's it's a difficult decision for these uh, cities to make because presumably it will it will bring some kind of economic benefit for a, a city like Leeds, which I'm using only as an example. Would it not? I mean, because the infrastructure is already there, they wouldn't have to build a new stadium. The roads were already there, so you'd think that the most of it would be profit. Or is that stupidly optimistic? Yeah, for for, for the for the. Uh the hospitality industry for the transport industry um absolutely but um it, that that benefit is there it's very very short term before before the circus moves on to the matches taking place you know the next day or 48 hours later um if you're going to have to pay for the privilege of hosting the matches then it could be that the that the gains that you generate um, during the competition itself are, are actually potentially outweighed by by the additional costs which are going to be charged by the authorities involved in the competition. Mm. Every now and again, Kieran, uh, when Guy sends through the suggested stories for the script, <laughs> there's there's one that I think I'm not I'm not I'm not going to read that out because I'm not going to be able to do it without laughing, as you can tell. But um, I'm going to take a deep breath. But this is our final news story, Kieran. Um, it's a biggie, and those of you paying attention will will already have worked out which club it's about. So I did mention that they were going to get a second. A second go. Uh, Tyson Fury is sponsoring Morecambe Shorts. Yes, um, and, and yeah, Tyson that does does live in that area of the country. Fair play to him. Um, and uh, he's he's bringing his Gypsy King brand to mm. both the uh, both the home and away shorts, I believe, um, of of Morecambe. It it will give them a bit more attention. There's no doubt about that. If, if we take a look at some of the other sort of celebrity endorsements of clubs, Ed Sheeran has uh, has been sponsoring Ipswich, and yep. I think I believe they've had their up on the back of that last season. I think they had the highest level of shirt sales for fifteen years because it was 
Ed Sheeran fans as well as Ipswich Town fans who, who bought the shirts. Um, I, I'm old enough to remember Wet 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 uh, sponsoring Clyde Bank many still, years ago. I've still got one of those shirts. Have you? Yeah. Oh, very good. Shamefully, yeah. It was it was given to me as a joke prize in Edinburgh one year, but yeah, <laughs> right. Unless you're a wet wet um, wet fan, in which case it's a cherished possession which I would never dream of getting rid of, <laughs> maybe because I can't find anyone to take it off my hands. But there you are. Um, so um, yeah, it, it's it's a it's it's a local individual who has uh, who, who who wants to increase the profile of his local football club. So so fair play to Tyson Fury. Um, the uh, I believe he's presently the world champion, although he's retired. If if you read what he said two weeks ago, but he may have spoken about it, something he may have spoken about it since and changed his mind. Yeah, I think he he, he wants to come back and fight uh, Joshua one more time. You'd rather negotiate with Ed Sheeran than Tyson Fury, wouldn't you? When <laughs> yes. it comes when it comes to the deal, Tyson Fury is on the other. I think even Uncle Terry would have trouble negotiating with Tyson Fury. Um, although I have to say, he's one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Um, as huge boxers often are. Now, it's been a very short but very busy summer for Grimsby Town following their remarkable playoff journey uh, into the Football League. So we thought it'd be a good time to catch up with their almost brand new chairman, Jason Stockwood. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Jason, thank you very much for joining us in what's uh, a remarkably busy summer for you. Before we talk about that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with Grimsby Town Football Club and becoming chairman. Yeah, well, look, thanks, Kevin, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so that's um, it's great to be here. I um, Yeah, look, I'm, 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 I'm from Grimsby originally. I'm a council estate kid, single-parent family, um, you know, free school meals, free housing, and free university. And so I went off my merry way through the world, um, eventually became a tech entrepreneur actually in the 90s by a, by a just chance being in the right place at the right time when the internet was being invented or came to popular parlance. So I had a career, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur and as an investor. Um, but actually the, the, the one constant in my life, wherever I've got in the world, wherever I've worked, the business I've built, has been my love for my hometown football club, Grinsby Town. So a few years ago, um, I thought about making an investment in the club, but I didn't fancy doing it on my own. I didn't fancy 
um, the, the current landscape of football. But but actually, when the opportunity came along um, to, to go in with uh, now a really good friend of mine, an investor uh, and a fellow Grimbarian called Andrew Pettit, um, we decided to have a run at it. And also the club, the club at the time as a fan, we thought has you know needed a bit of help. So yeah, it came together perfect timing, perfect partner in Andrew, and uh, felt like the the perfect timing in terms of what we think the role of a football club can be in society as well. That's interesting because I want to come back to you about the role of Grimsby Town in the in the life of Grimsby, the town. But you've also got a degree in philosophy, Jason, as well. And it strikes me that your backstory is is probably a little bit different to most club owners. Was that be, would that be right? Um, I guess that's for the people to comment, Kevin. Really. I, mean, I, I mean, my 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 life is a set of series of happy you know, circumstances and chances, the things that have come up for me as I've just followed my passion. So left school without very many qualifications, went travelling for a bit, lived abroad for a bit, and then found that I loved literature and philosophy. So I ended up getting a degree. The last time you could get a mature student grant, so probably ageing myself there. But that was a real privilege and, and did it really because I was interested in interested in, in arming myself with the intellectual tools to be able to ask the questions that I wanted to ask about the world, about the universe, about life and morality. And there was no, there was no obviously vocational aim to, you know, do a philosophy degree um, to, to pick a particular job. But what, what I didn't realise at the time, and, I, and this is something I try and drill into my own kids now, what it gives you is the right tooling and the leverage of several thousand years worth of history and writing to ask good questions and think creatively and critically about the world so it's been really powerful for me it was not I had no foresight that's what it would be but it's the thing that's allowed me to to structure my my thinking and, and the way that I approach the world in a certain way so yeah I don't I don't know if there's any more football chairman or owner with with the philosophy degrees it'd be nice to think there might be a couple you know in just in passing uh, history is my absolute passion and people always say to me what's the point of history and the point is context you get you get context for everything that's happening by studying history, but that's for a different podcast. Um, you're back in the in the in League Two, which is brilliant. Is can I ask is promotion back to the EFL more important to you psychologically or financially? Does it make a significant difference financially getting out of the National League? Yeah, I mean, I mean the short answer is both. I mean, probably worth roll of thumb about a million quid when you take in the solidarity payments the EPP payments and also a bit of commercial upside. I mean, we won't make more money as a football club because obviously that goes into better players, better infrastructure, better facilities, but it means we won't have to be writing, hopefully not as big a cheque mm-hmm. out of my kids', um, my kids um, um, inheritance to, to keep the club afloat. But so that, that's the one thing. And then psychologically, it's just the EFL is is where you want to be, right? It's a, it is a, it's a, it's a step up in every way, whether that's from... You know, as you get into certainly Division One and upwards, um, the improvement, the quality of football is significant. I think League Two actually is probably competitive with the top end of the National League, and we can talk a little bit about that, how how hard it was to get out. I think with the, the range of spend and capability in the National League, but I think there's something about governance as well. I think the National League um, needs to upgrade its governance a little bit. I think some good people in there, but it was a you know it was a semi-pro league a few years ago, whereas all the teams in there are professional now. And, and that shows up sometimes in some of the decision-making and, and some of the thinking around the National League. But I'm sure they'll catch up over time. But, yeah, massively important to us and, and super proud of the fact that we managed to do it in such a competitive year. It means something more because it was such a competitive season. So we're delighted to be 
Delighted to see the back of it, though, and, 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 and do everything we can to not be back there ever again. Do you think the days are long gone, Jason, when a club can survive in the National League or even get promoted at a semi-professional level? Or Because I think most clubs in, in even the regional National Leagues now are professional. Do you think that the genie's ever going to go back in that bottle? No, I yeah, I think I think that those, those days are gone. Unfortunately, from a sort of the the romantic in me, would love to think that someone with a part time playing staff could do that. And the reality is twofold. One, there's such a level of professionalism, competitiveness at the top end. When you look at Wrexham, you know the Solihulls of this world, Notts County, Chesterfield, and then the other the other side of it is that you know the scouting networks are so great now as well. If you have you know a good run and a set, like Halifax, are a good example, a really good club, well run. But on a on on a on a, a you know, sniff of a budget of a Wrexham, they had a great season last year. But if you look at their squad, it's been decimated. You know, we're we're pleased in some ways that we picked up a couple of their players to take into League Two with us. Mm-hmm. But it shows the sort of the nature. If you have a good season, you have an anomaly, then other league clubs are going to be looking at your players um, and the value that that can create as you go. So I think I think it's uh, yeah that sort of fairy tale is going to be difficult to to imagine. Um, you'd hope it would, but I think it's it's increasingly unlikely. And being back in the EFL will help protect your younger players as well, won't it? Well, that's that's one of the strange things that I didn't fully understand before we came to the football club. That's Lee, when you drop out of the league, the academy status is retained from the EFL for a couple of years, which means that all the legal protections of players that you're investing in to bring through and develop as well. And I should say, we've got an amazing academy structure under a guy called Neil Woods, who does a brilliant job in creating, but firstly, young, great young individuals and young people, but actually, secondly, great footballers. And so, you know, after a couple of years, when you lose that status, there's no legal construct to protect that investment. And so league clubs can come in and just poach your players. So that's something, again, the National League have to do better at. Because if you're going to commit to the long-term strategy academy, which we had done anyway, we were going to try and have to find a way to protect that investment and protect our players. But um, yeah, that's, that goes away. Once you're back in the EFL and, and you, you have those legal protections again, which is massively important, but not often talked about. You, you got out of the National League the hard way with uh, some of the best televised football games I've seen in the playoffs, which is easy for me to say because I was sitting at home watching it with a glass of wine. It must have been a nightmare <laughs> for you. But does getting promoted that little bit later mean that the summer turns into a real kick bollock scramble? Not familiar, not familiar with that, that turn of phrase, but yeah, um, <laughs> the, um, do you know, I was pretty relaxed through the players. I really enjoyed them as a spectator. And I thought we won sort of figuratively already in the season by the improvements we'd made, the, the, the collectiveness in our fan base again and the spirit of optimism that was being created. So I genuinely was pretty relaxed until I saw the last seven or eight minutes at the London Stadium <laughs> um, when I was doing all kinds of mental arithmetic to try and keep my mind off <laughs> the, 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 the then uh, possibility of being back up. But no, it's um, it is, it, it's huge for us as a club. And I think I think the, um, the, the closed season has been wonderfully chaotic as a result of that. A, we've got a lack of experience of going to a close season like this. And B, because of the nature of finishing the season so late and the season starting so early because of the World Cup, I think it's the shortest pre-season any club will ever have yeah. had, basically four weeks. So, But I must say, um, our manager, Paul Hurst, and his team around him have done a phenomenal job. Obviously, we've done a bunch of preparation and looking at the players we wanted to bring in. And then they've been really professional and just got back from a pre-season in Tenerife, which... Before before talking to football club, I didn't realise that would be a place people would be going <laughs> at the height of professional elite athletics. Um, it was known for other things in my day. But anyway, the, um, yeah, so, so they've just come back and um, 
we're well prepared and really excited about Leighton Orient this weekend. So, yeah, really compact and chaotic, but we've loved every minute of it as well. Yeah, I'm sure you only went to Tenerife to uh, get a peace, peace and quiet to read those philosophy books, <laughs> Jason, I'm guessing. Did yeah, you like lot, the... A lot, a lot, have you been in the Bar Kierkegaard's in Punta Arenas? It's, it's a cracking place, actually. <laughs> did, did you like the final being in London, by the way? Uh, not so much, to be honest. I mean, if it's at Wembley, yeah. You know, you could understand it being in London. Everyone would want to be, as a fan, as a, as a player, would want to be at Wembley. But, you know, the London Stadium, with all due respect to the West Ham fans, it's it doesn't appear really high on anyone's list of favourite stadiums in the UK, I'd suggest. So, mm. you know, it, when you look at the sort of the sort of attendances you're going to get for a National League final, top end, you know, if you get 40,000, 50,000, that would be outstanding. But you're really hovering around 20. There's loads of clubs up and down the country that could host that and have better facilities, particularly with so many northern teams dominating. But, but look, I um, I assume positive intent from the people of the National League. They would have had to have planned this nearly a year out. But um, it's another area of potential improvement, I would suggest, and mm. thinking about if you're not going to get Wembley, if Wembley's one thing, you know, then that, that's fine. But if you're not going to get that, looking somewhere else. But I've said this before, you know, we'd have, we'd have played in Timbuktu if it meant to get out of the league. So it's, it's sort of academic, but I think I think there's better options if, if the London Stadium is where they're thinking of it for next year. It, it, it strikes me as well, Jason, that you got out that, that league at the right time. Sky are always banging on about the championship and how everyone has to get out of the championship. It's the most difficult league to get out of. It occurs to me the Vanarama, the National League, is the... Hardest league to get out of. It's very difficult. There's only one automatic place for a start. And now you've got teams like Oldham and Scunthorpe coming down. It's going to be a, a very competitive league next season, isn't it? Yeah, look, I agree. I don't know about Oldham and Scunny um, putting on much of a fight. We'll see about that. But um, <laughs> as, a, as a Grimsby fan, I've got to be careful. But I do think I do think at the top end of that league, when we watched a lot of League Two footballers who were going to come into the club, there isn't a lot of difference at the top end. And I'd actually suggest clubs like Stockport and Wrexham, as I've said, Solihull go under the radar. They are a really top outfit with well-run, well-organised, some great players in there. You know, Notts County, Chester, all big clubs of their day. Um, so I agree with you. I think it's as, as, as competitive as it's ever been. And it's getting better even. You know, there's, there's no easy games. You know, as we showed, you know, some of our away form last year wasn't the greatest, but you go to some difficult stadiums and you play in difficult conditions. So I think it's, 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 a, it's a, it's a really interesting league, super competitive, very professional at the top. And there's a lot of people spending more money than in league two these days. But importantly, I've always said this, if you get out of it, you want to feel like you've achieved something rather than mm. just spending your way. And we've, we've done it the Grimsby way, the hard way. And actually we feel like it's a proper achievement because we haven't just tried to spend our way out of that league, but it's going to be even more difficult in the, in, in, in the future because there's so many good teams in there and everyone going, you know, due respect to Oldham and Scunny, they're both big clubs. And so, you know, you just see that that league is filling up with clubs that mm. have got to find a way out of it in some way. So it's definitely going to get harder rather than easier. As we said, being promoted through the playoffs gives you much less time to get the squad sorted out. But you spoke recently in a really quite moving blog of the pain of having to let players go. And you said that more needs to be done to help players that are released. What what sort of thing do you mean? Well, I mean, it was just because we're new to the game. It's it's really interesting that the uh, what struck me as as odd and an opportunity for improvement is the idea that, you know, for players to reach the elite standard that they have by being professionals is mathematically so improbable that they 
have to mm. have sacrificed a lot and gone through a lot to, to make it into the professional game. And then, you know, the way that, you know, as contracts come to an end, often contracts, particularly on the lower leagues, are short term, so six to 12 months. And then when they end, you know, the players have made a, a decent living and they do make a decent living. There's no bones about that, but it's for a finite amount of time. And often they're just popped out the other end of the system after a short conversation with the manager and left to their own devices. So it just occurs to me that there's a huge opportunity if you, I mean, I've, I've, this, this is part from my businesses elsewhere, right? If you treat people, if people have a technical ability and the desire to do well, if you treat them well in a high trust environment, mm. you will get the best out of those people anyway. And so it feels like to me, there's an opportunity for football to think a bit more like that. So we're trying to, wherever possible, give people slightly longer deals, two-year deals if we can. And then now I've been working with our captain last year, Gerald's coach, who's had a long career in, played a lot higher up the football pyramid to think about that experience as players come to the end of their careers how can you help make that softer landing it's never going to be a soft landing because it's difficult to go from that sort of adulation and and the sort of structure around football but it feels like there can be a better way to go into people earlier in their careers and talk about maybe dual mm. capability dual careers but yeah to be honest I'm trying to get smarter and understand it and one of the things that we're thinking about I've got a friend called Andrew Stringfellow who's a life coach and we're with him and Giles. We're saying, why don't we just speak to pros that are finished in their careers and at least give them four or five sessions with a with a psychologist or a life coach to think about their transferable skills. And then maybe the next piece of the puzzle is how do you place them into work experience? Because loads of people would love an ex-pro in their in their business. So watch this space. We're going to do some work on that. We're trying to understand it, but it feels like you know there's, there's definitely room for opportunity, particularly our players down the lower divisions. I think that's where the real work needs to be done. I have to say, Jason, when I read that, because we're we're aware, and we've been banging on about this for ages, and finally football clubs from the Premier League down are doing much more for the the youngsters, the 15, 16-year-olds that are released from academies without getting professional contracts. They're not just shaking their hands and showing them the door anymore. And again, the PFA is starting to do things with, with players in the last year of their career, but it never occurred to me that, of course, it's going to be emotionally very difficult for a player who's 27, 28, still got seven or eight years left of his contract to be told that he's not going to be part of this League Two dream that he's helped the club attain. So it's it's really encouraging to hear that you're looking out for their mental welfare as well, as long as well as their their sort of physical career. But it works on the basis for me, it's really simple, really. It's philosophically is that if you have people that come to your organization with a high capability and, and, and a natural talent, so that you have to be good to get. But the, the quid pro quo for that is that if you treat people well and try and give them you know, the, a stress free environment where they're trusted and valued, and that involves them, their families, and people around them, then they can perform at their best and optimal mm-hmm. as well. But there is a, just a stark reality of, and probably a good metaphor for life, right? In general, that you know, footballers. As we all go through transitions in our life to different careers and different life stages, there's probably no more starker transition from being a professional athlete into whatever comes after that, particularly Mm. if you've got to put bread on the table as well. So it feels like there's a lot that we could learn collectively about those transitions that everyone has to make at some stage and whether, whether, you know, football into another life at sort of lower league levels could be helpful for us all to understand. So there's, there's a bit of a vested interest in that as well. But at the heart of it, you want to make sure that people feel like if they do so much for your organisation, that they're taken care of as well. That's that's just a fundamental belief that we have anyway. So in, in the short time that you've been chairman of the club, would you say that releasing those players was the, the hardest decision you've had to make? Well, I must admit, I mean, so, so how we're set up is that, you know, we, we believe 
that the model is that you don't run the club. If you're an investor or a chair, uh, Andrew and I are completely aligned. Andrew Petty was my business partner. We're completely aligned on what we want to see for the long term. But our job is to, to, to give Paul Hurst, our manager, the tools to do the job that he wants to do. And likewise, Debbie Cook, who's our brilliant CEO, who joined us just over a year ago. You know, our job is not to make decisions for them, it's to be good counsel for them and help and advise them strategically. But it's up to them to make the decision. So I didn't, I didn't talk to the... Um, the players myself but Paul and I talked a lot about in the planning process before the season ended and also you know we speak most days now is just making sure that you know we want to keep improving so our obligations to the organization so you know you, you can't be over sentimental about the fact that we didn't fire anybody but players contracts weren't renewed and we're trying to talk about how you can do that in a humane way and make sure people are taken care of so there's a couple of individuals that that you know we we've, we've had conversations about how we how we make that la- that landing easier, but yeah, it's, it's it's just really difficult. Most players have gone on hopefully by being part of a promotion winning squad will find themselves another contract. Most of them have uh, happily, but it feels like you know for teams that aren't doing as well, you have those conversations. How can we collectively do a better job? So I don't think that wasn't a hard decision for me personally, and again. Part of the role and part of the job of being a CEO in other business investor is you like that pressure, you like the ability to make big decisions because that's the that's the gift of, of of things that are worth having. But at the same time, you know you need to be humane about it. And there's mm. a bit around that that seems lacking in the game overall. I think people could do better at. Mm. I'm just looking at my next question, Jason, and I realise I've probably made it sound a bit more sinister than I mean to, but obviously, like most clubs, you're always looking to get new investment in, but the club issued a a warning. That's the bit that sounds sinister. (laughs) Issued a a warning to potential investors recently, didn't it? Why was that? Well, yeah, it wasn't a warning. It's been misconstrued a little bit. I was just saying that we've got approached by a few people and... Look, the best time to raise money is when you don't need. I've always said this. So um, what what we've got now is an opportunity to to, to scan the landscape of people that want to invest in a football club like ours and share our values. I guess the the price of football type of metaphor would rather have a sort of a a Kieran Maguire rather than an Uncle Terry on the cap table (laughs) as as the investors. That's why I've been thinking about it, is that we just want to make sure that this is not a financial investment. You don't make money, but you you can, the, the balance sheet of what you can do uh, in terms of joy for yourself and for your community, and hopefully um, re-establishing the value of a football club beyond the the, the financial metrics is, is massive. And so the, the, my comments were really about, we don't want someone who just wants to drop a few quid in for a vanity project. This is something that's absolutely germane to our identities and close to our hearts. So we want to make sure that if someone wants to invest, and we will need investment at some point, they have to, they have to buy in entirely to the, um, to, to the Grimsby way and what we're trying to achieve for the long term. I'm just going to bring Kieran in there, uh, Jason, partly because you mentioned him and Uncle Terry, but <laughs> partly, Kieran, I've I've never that concept, the best time to raise money is when you don't need money, seems to be one that's alien to most other football owners. It, it makes a lot of sense because it allows you to shop around and get the best deal. And if you can't get a good deal from a potential lender, then then you can be patient. If you're borrowing out of necessity, then you have to take what's on offer. So uh, I, th- I think Jason's idea has has a lot of merit, actually, and uh, it, it shows that there's a long-term strategy to the club's development. Jason, I want to end, if you don't mind, um, with a couple of intangible questions. And I think just in the short time we've been speaking to each other, I, I can guess what the answer is going to be. But firstly, my friend Martin Gritton, he played for a lot of clubs at that level. But he, he always says he looks back on his time at Grimsby 
as his favourite. Um, and when you ask him why, he said there's just something about the place. Can you define what that is? Well, well Martin Green, what a player, by the way. That's yeah, great, great, great him to say such lovely things about us. Um, yeah, look, it, it, a very personal answer for me is that it, it's it's a place that I love. So I've only got an example of one. I've, I've been fortunate to spend a lot of my life travelling and see different places. But there is a there is a determination, a togetherness, a, and also a sort of a, a grit and dark sense of humour about mm. the, the town and the place that just... Um, that just just emanates from you know the last year and a half since we've been back involved. We just see in every dimension. You know, it's, it's not unlike many other towns that seen better days. You know, it was a post-industrial town. It was a it was the world's fishing capital in the seventies yeah. that went away. And we're trying to redefine ourselves, like not just the football club, but there's a sense that the civic institutions like football clubs have a massive part to play in bringing us together to create a new narrative of hope and aspiration. And you know, and, and you know, and and, and the local community is stepping into that, both in terms of the season ticket sales, which is 69% upon previous year, but yeah. also in the other initiatives that we've got going on in the town, where people want to own the future. And we've got the, the investment in the renewables industry that redefines, we've got a sense of community organisations, we've got a new on-site youth zone that we're building. So there's a number of initiatives where people are really stepping in and saying, look, we're proud of our past, we're proud of our industrial heritage, but... The future's got to be different. And how can we define that and use the football club as a coming together and a togetherness that's non-political, non-partisan, but gives us a springboard into hope and aspiration and excellence that means that the next 100 years will look different. Whilst, you know, doffing our cap to the past, we want to make sure the future looks very different as well. So I think, um, yeah, which I appreciate Martin saying that, but there is a, there's both um, a curiosity, a, a determination and togetherness about the time. And also, you know, we don't take ourselves too serious. No one's allowed to get above their station, which I always really like as well, which is, which is always a good characteristic, I think. You've sort of answered this last question to the extent that I'm still going to, I'm still going to say it, but it's become more of a statement, really, because, as you say, Grimsby was once home to the world's largest fishing fleet, but then suffered terribly economically. But recently, it's growing again. Uh, it's reinventing itself as a cultural hub. As you say, the, the football club, the huge surge in season ticket sales. It, it seems to me that the town and the club uh, are part of the same symbiotic process of recovery. And Kieran and I always talk on this pod about how important a, a football club is to its economy. And it's something that outsiders never fully understand. A football club is at the heart of its community and it's a two-way thing. And it seems to me that what's happening in Grimsby is a perfect example of that. Well, we hope so. I mean, um, look, I, I went back to university a couple of years ago and offered a fellowship to go and think about these things. So this is this is deliberate as well, is that there's a moment in time that we're taking advantage of. But it's a firm philosophical belief that we need to rebuild the institutions that bind us together and create a common life. You know, there's a lot of philosophy, a lot of history about this. And I think within that, there is also a moment in time when you look at the leveling up agenda that's been talked about. If you look at the sort of post-industrial need to get back to growth and redefine ourselves in a different way. The philosopher Robert Putnam talks about this a lot in Bowling Alone and the upswing is later, but which is capitalism was tethered by civic institutions and most of those have gone away, whether that was unions or churches or mm. civic groups. And I think football clubs are the, are the things that have endured. Now, if we can reframe them and revitalise them to make them such a powerful cultural hub and centre of our identity, 
then the coming together will be a catalyst and a springboard to all kinds of other things. So it's a conscious and deliberate strategy, but it's also opportunistic. We love the club, we love the town, and we love the people. So, so but, but genuinely, I feel there's a philosophical way that football clubs can be used. And the Fair Game Initiative, which is the coming together of a bunch of clubs, as you know, and mm. I came as an advisor to, there's a bunch of clubs that are thinking like this, and I think in the next five years, we'll see more rather than less of it because it means that these are the few places we can come together irrespective of whatever identity dimension we, we operate on, whether it's gender or religion or politics. We come together, in many cases, to be miserable together for 90 minutes every couple of weeks. And, <laughs> but that shared experience, that shared narrative, and that the philosopher Simon Critchley talks about that, that, that sense of association is so powerful and we've sort of forgotten it a little bit. And I think mm. if we can bring that to the forefront again, you know, all power to us, I think football can really be that catalyst for change that we're all hoping for. What's it, see, I really identify with that as I come, I'm a very proud Londoner. I'm a very proud South Londoner, but I come from a part of South London where two or three towns sort of merge into each other. It's a nebulous. There's no real landmarks. There's nothing to point it out to people from outside London. There's no real traditional industry, but what gives me my identity is Crystal Palace Football Club. And it's the same for a lot of people of all different classes, religious backgrounds, but the football club gives us our identity. And that's, that story is, repeated across the country and it's it's one of those things that I don't think people outside football give us enough credit for that really for how important a football club is which is why I'm really pleased to be able to highlight what you're doing for your for your club and for your town. Well Dan's can now look I think I think um, as I've got older I've, I've thought about my own identity and the, and the one constant I mean I sat next to a guy at lunch a couple of months ago and I was talking about this and he was saying the two I was I was suggesting that two constants in your life are your partner and your football club. And he turned around to me, this is a Grimsby comment. He said, Well, yeah, but you can't change your football club, can you? You know, so <laughs> so um I'm just in case my wife's listening to this, there's no suggestion for me that I agree with that point of view. But it's interesting, it is it is actually as you get older, you look for all the changes you go through in life. The football club is your one concert and it refreshes itself each year with new stories, new narrative, and new cast in many ways. But it's still the same thing, you know, in many ways. So, so I think it's profound. And I'm interested to see if your listeners think, I can't think of other types of institutions that, that remain constant in your life but keep renewing yeah. as well. I think that's so unique. And I think it's, you know, this is the opportunity, right, the fan-led review and, and what the next Tory leader, whoever that should be, needs to embrace that because I think you underestimate your peril. And I think the idea of, you know, the free market economics that the, the Super League suggested misses so much. These are different entities with, with a different mm. potency in our communities and our political minds that, you know, we, we need to make sure we hold them, you know, as preciously as they are valued. I, I, maybe I've got older, I agree with this, but I can't, I can't think of anything else that, that remains so constant and so fresh at the same time. I, I always describe uh, Palace as the baseline to my life, whatever whatever's happening, good or bad, from the age of nine, that's been the one constant. It's always there, and it's always there to go back to. And it's 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 not just the club itself; it's everything around it. It's going to the same pub for twenty five years, talking the same bollocks to the same people <laughs> at the same table. But you can't you can't underestimate that. And Jason, I'm aware that we we have time issues. So um, all we can do is wish you the very best of luck in League Two next season i'm really really pleased that football is coming back this weekend um good luck with everything thank you so much for talking to us it's been a pleasure thanks kevin thanks kevin i've really enjoyed coming on so i appreciate your work on this over the years thanks a lot kevin i have to say uh if i was a grimsby fan i'd be 
delighted listening to that. And as a football fan of a, of a certain, as a legacy fan, should we say, I'm even more delighted because he really, Jason really, really understands the relationship between a club and the town, doesn't it? And what he had to say as well about the the psychological welfare of players at the club release, I thought was was fantastic. Yeah, I, I thought he was uh, inspirational. Um, he uh, he has been successful. He he's got that emotional tie to the club, um, and, and as he said, you know, he, he's, he's quoted back on me. In fact, he's actually read my book, yeah. which is more than I've ever done, um, you know, in, in terms of the, the four reasons to buy a club, but to, to come up with a fifth. Um, and I absolutely agree with what he said. So, uh, yes, yeah, very, very, very impressive. And um, we need more Jason Stockwoods in football. Yes, we do. Um, uh, there's more noise as more people turn up. It's, they're all going to Edinburgh tomorrow, so which is why I've been – I'm now in a hallway – Next to the front door, Kieran, because apparently props are more important than the pod <laughs> in this house. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, and remember, if you do so, you can get an ad-free version of the show, then go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, then email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And within two and a half years, I promise you, we will answer that question straight away and in the meantime i shall hand you over to mr kieran Maguire for his customary farewell well thanks as always folks for your support via via patreon and, and other means and uh we, we do take on board your comments um if you uh if, if you want to support a show in a slightly different manner one way you can do that is is to go onto your podcast app and to to leave a review um and it it uh, it doesn't matter what you say by all accounts. It's the fact that you, you do leave a review. I, I believe it's the it's the stars that count when it comes to the algorithms of, of Spotify and Apple. So um, you you could say whatever you want. You could either, you could say you would rather have the show presented by Huggy Bear from Starsky <laughs> and Hutch and Davina McCall, and I think that'll be a fantastic combination rather than myself and Kevin. And, and our egos can cope with it. Um, but uh, you know, and and, it, and it'll be a show that that I'm sure would get a lot of uh, attention uh, from the media as well. Um, so, but other than that, uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you soon. Do you know what? Bizarrely, Kieran, that's the second time I've mentioned Huggy Bear this week. I was talking really? to Ed. Yeah, I was talking to Ed about you know how we had to make our own entertainment in the old days, and how how Saturday nights were basically a long slog waiting for match of the day, but. but uh, Starsky and Hutch was a, I loved Starsky and Hutch and Huggy Bear I used to make me laugh so much that character which was odd when you work out basically that he was a gangster pimp but they, <laughs> they made him quite a lovable gangster pimp I imagine uh, so Huggy Bear Uncle Terry uh, Davina McCall would be a great host but uh, I don't know what Huggy Bear's like at getting a word in edgeways but he'd have to be very good <laughs> uh, bye everybody bye The Prison Football. The Prison Football.